I'm David Goldstein. I'm Brian Brinkman. And I'm Jonathan Hart. You are tuned in to episode 16 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself and tonight Jonathan use the music of Fish as a means to introduce the listener to non-jam bands and different other musical styles that we think that they might enjoy. Because we love Fish, we are Fish fans. The problem is that Fish fans is they kind of have a tendency to listen to nothing but Fish. So you'll be out with your buddies and one of them will be wearing a shirt that says spiritualized. And you might think that your buddy underwent a crazy religious conversion, but that's just <laughs> a band name. And if you listen to the podcast, you know spiritualized were a band. So you can't be ignorant. That's all we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> we are pleading against collective musical, well, I guess in total collective ignorance, but collective musical ignorance on this podcast. So this is our 16th episode. Uh, and in this episode, we are going to do something completely different than we've ever done before. We are focusing on a style of music that Fish plays in uh, and they've played in throughout their career. And we brought on Jonathan Hart from Broke Down Pod and from Helping Friendly Pod to uh, do this with us. We're going to go through all of um, or a good part of Fish's bluegrass influence and talk a bit about bluegrass music, do a pretty big deep dive into the genre. So for anybody that uh, this is your first time listening to Beyond the Pond, the way it works, uh, in typical episodes, we pick a jam, do a big deep dive on the jam, and then talk about some songs and some bands that thematically have something to do with that jam, either from a musical standpoint or a historical standpoint or just whatever we're thinking of in terms of how it relates to that jam in question. Uh, This time we're basically going to do that. We're just going to focus on uh, bluegrass songs that Fish has played and their influences and kind of the entire genre of bluegrass in general. And some of the themes we're going to tackle on this show include tracking the lineage of fish bluegrass, bluegrass pushing beyond its borders, and a brief history of bluegrass. But before we get to that, um, like we said at the top here, very excited to have Jonathan on. Uh, welcome to Beyond the Pond, Jonathan. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're very happy to have you. And uh, Dave and I are both... Uh, avid listeners of Broke Down Pod. Uh, Both of us just finished up your September episode, September 1972, which was fantastic. And um, if you would, just kind of tell us a little bit about uh, the origins of uh, Broke Down Pod and kind of what your reasoning was for making it, what what, uh, kind of the larger goals of it are. Well, uh, again, thank you for having me on. I'm really glad to be on here and talking with you guys. I am uh, an avid listener of Beyond the Pond. Awesome. Thank you. But uh, 
As you mentioned, I'm also on the Helping Friendly podcast, which is a fish podcast, and I've had a lot of fun with that and really enjoyed working on that. But I've also found that I needed to listen to more Grateful Dead and needed to talk more about Grateful Dead and I had things to say. And so I decided to uh, I decided to do it. So put together a podcast. We I release it on a monthly schedule, mostly due to time, just the time I have available. Yeah. Um, but I try to pack a lot of music into each episode so that, you know, it can keep you company for the rest of the month. Tell me a little bit, you know, from your standpoint, when you're going through or when you're planning out a month or two in advance, how do you go about selecting an era to focus on and then like from there, how do you go about selecting particular songs? Well, you know, I'm in the first year, so in some respects, it's easy. Okay. So in April, it was easy for me to say, well, it's time for me to talk about April 78, which is something that I'm a fan of that is, I would say, easily overlooked because there's just a lot of other probably more significant um more significant time periods to the band, but it's something I'm, I'm a fan of. So once I have a general idea of the time frame or the theme, uh, I start kind of just listening, which yeah. is the best part, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, just listen to all the shows, kind of make note of a good version that stands out or a song that I hear a lot and... I just start building a little a list of songs, and then eventually I go back and start figuring out which versions of them, and do I have enough for a couple hours of music, and then try to figure out what sequence I want to put them in. Sometimes it's designed to recreate something that might have happened. Sometimes it's not, because I have the freedom to not play it exact or sort things exactly the way the dead would do it. Right. Um, what I really like about Broke Down Pod is often you kind of, at times, adhere to the like set one, set two ideology. When you're taking the songs from an era, you can kind of sort of get to play God. And although, you know, <laughs> not not every recording is going to have the same sound quality, I think it's really neat and admirable how you kind of, like, you can edit them together to sort of, I guess, like simulate sets from that are that you're working on. That's kind of I'm glad I'm glad you hear it that way because it's, it's certainly the goal is to make them kind of feel at least hang together well, even if they don't resemble an actual set. Um, they should feel, if I've done it right, they should feel at least like the songs belong together. No, I definitely get that impression when I hear it, and I. I would agree with Dave. That's one of my favorite aspects of it. And I think, you know, I can tell just from, you know, listening to you and I, you know, in conversations that we've had, um, you know, you do seem to really like experimentation and when unique and kind of weird things happen within the dead performances, similar to fish. So it's not like structured exactly like how you would hear a show, but it, I do like how, um, you'll fit more traditional set one songs in your first set and it will feel like a kind of compacted show. It almost makes me wonder what someone could do with, say, like Fish Fall 1997 in terms of trying to create a play God and try to create like the ultimate set one and two for it. So I like that a lot. Don't, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need any more projects. <laughs> we might be there before we know it. Um, so I'm curious, uh, 
you know, you've you focused on some pretty, and you said this about your first episode, April '78. That's uh, for someone like myself who has a strong curiosity in the dead, but I've not dived into their history the same way I have fish. Um, I was really excited to hear an episode like that, simply because I just wasn't as aware of that uh, of that era. Um, what for you is kind of your standout year, standout era of the dead? You know, I kind of, I've often given the, the answer that I, I, I really like, I like the years 1965 through 1995. <laughs> um, and, and it's, it sounds like a cheap cop out and it probably about 40% cop out, but really I can't settle on any one for any amount of time. Okay. I can, I can constantly go back to the 70s stuff and the pre-75, pre-hiatus or whatever you want to call that, um, quote, retirement, and quote, um, material. And that's amazing. I can listen to 77, but I'm more likely, I, I kind of like 76 a lot, and I like some early 78. Um, I, like, I like Brent a lot, so I'll listen to... 79 to 89 90 in a heartbeat i might skip over 86 yeah but not always there's good stuff in there too somewhere so at least for uh, me um like for some reason 1976 that's kind of like my fish 2.0 in the sense that i know it's good i'm just not nearly as familiar with it as i should be and i have to do something about that uh, well, we'll get to that one uh, in uh, at some point in the show. We'll Seventy-six, right. yeah, absolutely. Do you have any uh, particular favorite show, or is it? Um... I absolutely do. It's it's Vanita eight twenty-seven seventy-two, um, without question. Um, Sometimes the obvious answer is the best answer. I was just going to say that it's a classic for a reason. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I wrote an open letter, uh, I don't even know how many years ago now, uh, to the band and whomever, whomever needed to read it, um, begging them to release Vanita and remaster and reissue the film. There had been rumblings for years that somebody had done this with the film and nothing was happening and nothing was happening. And finally, um, they announced it uh, about a year maybe two years after that letter. And I, I take full credit for, uh, <laughs> you should, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, it seems silly, but you know, I remember exactly where I was when I got the news, they were releasing Vanita. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I don't know of many albums that have had that sort of immediate, like bearing for me, but there was that. So Best that must be song ever. Best a lot of things. Okay. Best a lot of things, including that bird song. Where can we find you online? Um, I am all kinds of on the internet. Um, the Broke Down Podcast has a Twitter account, which is at Broke Down Pod. And there's a internet website, which is brokedownpodcast.blogspot.com. And I'm sorry, that's a mouthful, but someday I'll shorten it. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, it's on the um, Facebook under Broke Down Podcast as well. What about you guys? I'm looking forward to some fish bluegrass right about now.
All right. So why are we talking about Fish Bluegrass of all styles of music that the band has played in? So these are songs that are typically played in either the first set or the encore, and they're treated in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases like they're filler. But these are always songs that are an energy kick to kick the show in gear. Originally a mic influence on the band, uh, I think one of the big reasons that we wanted to tackle bluegrass, especially with Jonathan, is uh, it gives Fish a relationship to the American musical lineage and connects them to a larger, uh, to larger historical roots of American music. While much of the band's music, from a songwriting standpoint and a covering standpoint, certain certainly employs a diversity of musical influences from British rock and funk to reggae and prog rock ambient blues broke pop etc uh their bluegrass influences always seem to feel the most intentional and direct um whereas the aforementioned styles really flow in and out of fish songs and you can hear songs like multiple uh, uh segments of different styles of music um and tend to allow more ample room for experimentation uh only rare instances have bluegrass songs been used in this manner for fish. Yeah, Brian. Generally speaking, uh, when it comes to fish bluegrass, they are very much purist. You're not ever going to get a 30-minute fish bluegrass song. Um, there was a time that comes to mind because I was there. Uh, second night of the island tour it was April 3rd, 1998. They did a segue. They went from Mike Song to Old Home Place into Weekapog, which was fantastic that was my 13th show and my first mic song the lights went down i started screaming <laughs> that's a pretty <laughs> but, uh yeah like you said for the most part the bluegrass songs they are giving a rather standardist of standard treatment which never takes away how fun the artists see live certainly there are um a number of other kind of notable examples where it comes out of a, a jam and one actually a couple that I was at were both at the great went um, the went gin transitioned into an uncle pen uh, quite beautifully I might say and um, and also at the went they pulled ginseng Sullivan out of a ghost which was yeah. pretty grand yeah um, they've also uh, towards the latter end of 1.0 you got a, another ginseng Sullivan out of uh, sneak and Sally through the alley. And in 3.0, there's a fantastic... I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. We've talked about the Worcester shows on here a couple of times. But uh, 6-8-2012, they play a really... uh, Night 2. Yeah, Night 2. They play a compact version of Sand that goes into kind of a Plinko jam that segues perfectly into Nellie Kane. It's unbelievable. I think that's got to be the first time anybody's used the word Plinko and Nellie Kane in the same <laughs> sentence. Probably. So we have a. Last, yeah. <laughs> in terms of some um, some notable fish bluegrass songs, in terms of their originals, they we've got um, My Sweet One, it's Poor Heart. There's uh, things people do, not so much the one on Big Boat, but the the original, the original version. Yeah, sometimes that they play live. Water in the Sky, Scent of a Mule, certainly. If I Could, Rift, and it gets fast enough for you. The studio version has uh, some lovely pedal steel in that song. From Gordon Stone, if I remember correctly. Yes, yes that is correct. 
In terms of covers, some of which we're going to discuss, there's the aforementioned Nellie Kane, Ginseng Sullivan, Uncle Penn, Old Home Place, the Osborne Brothers classic Rocky Top, Beauty of My Dreams, Paul and Silas, My Mind's Got a Mind of Its Own, and Boston's Foreplay Long Time in of itself. Not envisioned as a bluegrass song, but they certainly did it that way in 1994, I believe. Yeah, that was actually the encore at my first fish show was uh, Bluegrass Foreplay Long Time, followed by Rocky Top uh, at uh, at the Patriot Center in <laughs> Fairfax, Virginia Fairfax. on 10894. It was outstanding. And, of course, the show already had left an impression on me, but I was quite blown away by that interpretation. All right, so stepping back uh, to talk a little bit about when Fish has focused pretty heavily on bluegrass. So um, pretty much any 1.0 show in the 90s that you put on, you're going to hear at least one bluegrass song. It always filtered its way into their set list. Um, But there are a couple occasions where Fish focused pretty heavily on bluegrass. And the first of these is um, there was a week in November 1994, specifically the 16th through the 20th, where they featured uh, the Reverend Jeffrey Mosier on a number of songs throughout the show, and he spent a bunch of time between shows giving the band further guidance in performing bluegrass. Um, Jonathan, what are uh, some of the highlights of some of these shows? Well, um, first I'd like to note Jeff Mosier, you know, he came to them from ARU. He was yeah. a member of Aquarium Rescue Unit, and I think they they first... We were just talking about this. I think you first shared the stage with him back in uh, 90, June of 1990. Um, so he met them when they were probably, you know, passing on the road with uh, Aquarium Rescue Unit. And then they brought him back out and uh, for bluegrass lessons, basically. And that stretch in November of 94, they did a bunch of shows. So in 11-16, they debuted Foggy Mountain Breakdown, um, I'm, Blue, I'm Blue, I'm Lonesome, Long Journey Home, um, and that's the show where they, from which you get the chalk dust that's on a live one, and uh, a really big simple. And they played Tennessee Waltz for the first time in a while, like Pig in a Pen, and uh, Swing Low Sweet Chariot for the first time in, I don't know, 600 plus shows. Yeah. And um, and he's out again the next night for the encore for, you know, a repeat of I'm Blue, I'm Lonesome. They played Nellie Kane, Long Journey Home. Um, to France and to, and to fix and to die, which was a, a staple of Colonel Bruce and the ARU, um, and that was a debut. Interesting. Um, that was uh, that show was my first ever fish tape, and uh, wow. that first set just completely hooked me. The Helter Skelter. There's a Wilson. There's a Maze. A divided Sky. They end it with Colonel Forbins and the Vibration of Life, and about halfway through the narration. I uh, was like, never heard a band play like this before. I'm, I need everything that this band has ever played right now. And uh, <laughs> fortunately, there were no, there were no such things as smartphones or apps at the time. So I had to collect tapes uh, painstakingly before uh, uh, getting everything all at once. <laughs> it's funny. A show with a vibration of life, it, it can go either way. So you're either going to, it's going to convert you or it's going to send you off. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What else do we got Dave from this week? Let's see from November 18th, little tiny butter biscuits, old home place 
in my long journey home with Reverend Jeff Moji to close out set one. This was the debut of Little Tiny Butter Biscuits. Um, he also returned for the encore debut of Roll in My Sweet Baby's Arms, and there was a runaway gym on banjo. We've got November 19th. This was the famed pre-show bluegrass jam session outside of the tour bus. This was a lineup of... Um, I think there's photos of this inside the fish book by, by Richard Garrett. Maybe not outside the tour, but certainly uh, of this era where they, um, the bluegrass lineup it had Mike on banjo and electric bass. Paige was playing an upright bass. Trey on guitar and fiddle. Fish on mandolin. And then Jeff Mosier on banjo. Guy named Eric Merrill on fiddle. A fan named Abe Stevens on the jaw harp. Another fan just named Jeremy on banjo. Oh, to have been outside the tour bus on November 19, 1994. <laughs> and then finally, of this week, uh, November 20th, Jeff Mosier, he joins again in the middle of the first set for If I Could on banjo and something else. Little Tiny Butter Biscuits, Long Journey Home, and the debut of Dooley. It's a... Uh... There is a film uh, from this run. It's a, mm. not an official film, but there's a circulating video. I think you can find it on the YouTube now of, uh, you know, rehearsals, little backstage rehearsals. And I think there's some shots on the bus um, and of this little uh, bus tour bus performance that everybody should seek out if they're interested in this sort of thing. It's um, just really amazing to see close-up film shot by, I think, some of it is shot by Jeff Mosier. In fact, uh, I remember this one particular sequence of the band in the rehearsal room playing um, I'm Blue, I'm Lonesome, and you know, Paige on the bass and just Trey on guitar and taking turns singing the, the lines. And it's just, it's just outstanding, really, really worth a look. I'd love to see that. It's amazing, uh, this era, the fact that they were so focused on playing true Americana music while also in a month when they were playing 30-minute tweezers and 37-minute David Bowies and embracing this completely avant-garde, noise-induced music. It's like this the two extremes of Fish meeting together during one month. And also right on the heels of having performed the White Album on Halloween. Right, right, where they just had to learn all these songs that were... Um, I mean, I guess they showcased as much diversity as you could possibly get from the Beatles, but you know, you've got your classic rock high, you've got all this experimentation, and then you've got this um, uh, very salt of the earth type of music that it just it fits, but it's just uh, it's a very where you would see later in years where they would focus uh, a tour on one overall sound. You know, thinking specifically of like 1997 this was still in an era when they were kind of playing a gumbo. Just to wrap up this first section, we would be remiss if we did not mention uh, two fantastic shows from Antioch, Tennessee, uh, July 1st, 1999, and June 22nd of 2000. I mean, Antioch, it's basically a subdivision of Nashville. I think it's like 15 minutes away by car. But on um, the July 1st show, midway through set one, they were joined by members of the Del McCurry Band for a variety of songs. There was uh, Jerry Douglas playing dobro, Ronnie McCurry on mandolin, and Tim O'Brien on fiddle. They come on board for Wolfman's Brother. 
Beauty of My Dreams, Doing My Time, fantastic versions of Roger and Water in the Sky, and then uh, Back on the Train and a Poor Heart Closer. And then on June 22, 2000, they had gotten back from Japan not so long ago. It was a similar lineup with um, Rob McCurry on banjo, Ronnie McCurry on mandolin, Sam Bush on fiddle, Del McCurry on guitar, and good old boy Ricky Skaggs on mandolin. It's like we got Jason Carter on fiddle and Mike Bubb on upright double bass. They closed out uh, the second set with playing all those instruments in a very melodic version of Harry Hood, actually, as well as I'm Blue, I'm Lonesome, Hold What You Got, Uncle Penn, and then Freebird with full instrumentation and Winona Judd on vocals. This was not an acapella Freebird. This was a full-on Skinnered rock and roll with Winona Judd dedicating the song to her girls and saying that she's going to quit her job and just tour with fish. <laughs> There's a great stage pattern. And she actually she got divorced about two years prior. So when she sings Freebird... She's not kidding. It's free as a bird. Yeah, yes. I listened to that this afternoon, and it was, uh, again, and it was outstanding. Um, also, um, we really ought to mention Oswego, because mm-hmm. on, um, I think it was on the second night, on 718, yes. uh, Del McCrory Band came out during the first set, and they did Back on the Train, If You Need a Fool, I'm Blue, I'm Lonesome, and Beauty of My Dreams, and... Uh, Trey, gushing over Del McCurry being on stage, says before they play Beauty in My Dreams, you know, you've heard us play this song before, but this is how it's supposed to be played. Jumping into our main section of music, we've got two segments of uh, uh, music to showcase for you guys. Um, Before we kind of get into things, we wanted to set the proper context. Um, So obviously, Fish, an American touring band playing very American music, but Bluegrass has some very deep historical roots in this country, and um, we wanted to present that all to you guys before we get started. So... We're going to talk a little bit about the history of bluegrass, as well as um, elements where bluegrass has experimented. You know, Fish is a band that experiments a lot, plays bluegrass in a very traditional sense, but there are examples of bluegrass 
uh, moving forward in its own genre and pushing against its own borders. So um, to kick things off, Jonathan's going to present us with a brief overview of the history of bluegrass. Thanks. Yeah, so I'll try not to get too far into the weeds. We don't want to put anybody to sleep, but um, bluegrass music, essentially it evolved from the folk traditions from the, the Scottish and English and Welsh immigrants. They found their way up into Appalachia, and the music then trickled down the hills, took on a new life, and ultimately a new genre was born. And And that really began, or has been pinpointed to have begun, with Bill Monroe. So Bill Monroe was born in Kentucky. He's uh, from a family of Scottish descent. And as was not uncommon, uh, everybody in the family played an instrument. And he had two older brothers. So um, his uh, brother Charlie played the guitar and his brother Birch played the fiddle. So Bill was stuck with the mandolin. Um but it paid off in the end, ultimately. But after their parents passed, Bill ended up, his, you know, his brothers were older, so Bill was sent to live with his uncle Pendleton, uh, Pendleton Van Diver, who, <laughs> yeah. So he uh, often took Bill out to accompany him uh, on mandolin as he played fiddle at dances and things. And that's the man that Monroe would later immortalize with the song Uncle Pen. Interesting. Um, Didn't know yeah. that. So when he got older and moved out. He moved to, I think it was Indiana and formed a band with his brothers, Charlie and Birch. And then Birch moved on. Uh, but the band saw some success, a little, you know, radio performances and some things. And, uh, ultimately they split up because, uh, Bill, I think Bill really wanted to be a leader and Charlie was kind of standing up and taking all the leads. And, um, and so they split up and Charlie started his own band and, um, he continued to have a good career until he passed in the 70s. And uh, Bill Monroe uh, started one group and then started another group that he named the Bluegrass Boys. And he named that for his home state, the Bluegrass State of Kentucky. And in 1939, they auditioned for the Grand Ole Opry with a Jimmy Rogers song called Mule Skinner Blues. They, um, they soon cut that as a record for RCA. And you can hear that, and when you listen to that, you can hear the roots of bluegrass, but really that is what we were calling, or what they were calling at the time, old-timey or hillbilly music. Hmm. wasn't really what we would call bluegrass yet. Um, soon after, though, uh, in the next few years, band shifted, people came and went, and uh, he soon hired an innovative young bluegrass player named Earl Scruggs. And Earl Scruggs had an unusual play, uh, unusual way of picking the, the banjo with his three fingers, a technique that is nowadays called Scruggs style. And uh, they also hired a guitar player uh, named Lester Flat. And really, it was at that time that the sound cemented into what we would call traditional bluegrass music. Uh, contains elements of folk, gospel, blues harmony vocals, um, a hot picking with a driving rhythm, uh, typically, although of course they have ballads and those kinds of things, but it, it's that sound that kind of cemented and kind of carved itself a niche in the national soundscape, if you will, and other groups started playing it. 
Flatt and Scruggs then moved on and started their own fairly innovative and very successful uh, band. And as I said, other acts rose to prominence with this sound, like the Stanley Brothers, Reno and Smiley, Jim Eanes, Jim and Jesse, Jimmy Martin and the Osborne Brothers, whom you mentioned earlier, David, and uh, Buzz Busby and the Country Gentleman. And then, you know, into the 50s, bluegrass kind of grew and became more popular. But, um, well, up to eight, it became so popular, Elvis even covered Bill Monroe's Blue Moon of Kentucky and had a huge hit. Oh, wow. Uh, he sped it up, um, but uh, he recorded it with Bill Monroe's blessing. And in fact, in later years, Bill Monroe actually played it more at Elvis's tempo. Um, so it was a big hit. And... Uh, but then mainstream country music and then this this other thing called rock and roll kind of took <laughs> off and kind of captured the collective attention, even in the South where bluegrass was the most popular. And so it kind of died off. Uh, died off would be too strong, but it certainly lost its popular draw and became more of a novelty and festivals and of course still on the Opry and whatnot um, until the folk scare of the 1960s gave him a new boost. in the 1960s brought with it a new generation of pickers. Some of these came through the ranks of traditional first-generation acts like Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. They continued to be a concern, and just as folks like Jim Jim Eanes and Flatt and Scruggs did 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 turns in the band, um, the tradition continued, and players like Del McCroy and Pete Rowan uh, grew within the scene. Others simply grew up listening to those who came before them. John Hartford was inspired by Earl Scruggs and was playing in bluegrass bands in high school. He finished college, went to Nashville, and was signed by RCA and Victor and made several albums that learned uh, that leaned into folks and country and was not particularly bluegrass. Uh, his second album produced a song called Gentle on My Mind that Glenn Campbell turned into a big hit, which afforded Hartford the commercial and financial freedom to work in the way that he wanted. Uh, don't we all want wish that? Uh, in 71, he released a record that would redefine bluegrass and forge a path for the new grass generation. The record's called Aeroplane, um, and here you can hear the influence of folk, and the rock singer-songwriter movement that was injected into bluegrass through Hartford and through the second uh, uh, second group of bluegrass uh, songwriters.
and some other groups that forged ahead included the New Grass Revival, guys like Sam Bush, New South, which formed around J.D. Crow, The Seldom Seen, that's Seen, S-C-E-N-E, which featured former country gentlemen John Duffy and Tom Gray, and The Dillards. It's worth noting that uh, Fish covered Dooley in the old home place, both of which came from the first Dillard's album, and J.D. Crow's New South performed a notable version of the old home place as well. I have to interject there. Yeah. I, I have this suspicion that Trey, who, you know, just given his time and, and the time frame of the, uh, the New South record, which was kind of a big record, I feel mm-hmm. like he may have learned old home place from there. Um, and were it not for Dooley coming from that Dill- same Dillard's record, uh, you know, I would feel really confident about it. But uh, um, it, that version really cleaves very close to the way Fish plays it. Interesting. I'll have to go back and listen to that. Just one great record. Uh, with regard to the seldom scene, they have a live album from 1975 called Live at the Cellar Door, the famous venue in Washington, D.C., which... Miles Davis had his smoking bands in December of 1970. Same venue. That's uh, that's actually an album that, John, you told me about about a year ago. And I sought it out, and it is a fantastic bluegrass album. Closes with a version of I, I Know You Rider that yeah. you don't have to be a deadhead to fully, really, really fully get into. They're, they're so. a terrific group that, um, you know, formed in – the seller of Ben, Ben Eldridge, the banjo player. And, uh, that basically they didn't want to tour. They all had jobs. I mean, John Starling was a doctor and, um, they kind of just largely played locally in the DC area and made records. Hmm. Um, so there, there's really two lineups, two major lineups, two divisions uh, after Dr. Starling left. Um, I think Phil Rosenthal came on and took the, guitar and tenor vocals, uh, but uh, just outstanding run of records from those guys. Just to go back, one other group that pushes bluegrass out of his comfort zone was Old and In the Way, featuring a guy by the name of Jerry Garcia on banjo, David Grisman on mandolin, Peter Rowan on guitar, Vassar Clements on fiddle, and uh, John Hartford actually played some of their rehearsals. John Kahn is uh, certainly Jerry Garcia's bass player from the Garcia band on bass. So rock and roll had come to bluegrass, and at this point, bluegrass had come to rock and roll. And David Grisman wasn't content just to stick to country and pop music forms. After jug bands, bluegrass, and even a psychedelic rock group with Peter Rowan, he injected jazz into bluegrass, and with his quintet, he created a whole new branch of bluegrass related music.
also in the 70s, uh, jazz and Western swing guitar player Slim Ritchie formed a label called Ridge Runner and began putting out records from bluegrass players, including Sam Bush, Alan Mund, Buck White, Dan Huckabee. And these records often cross the lines from traditional bluegrass to Texas swing and into rock and folk, but also to outright jazz. There's a record from a guy named Fred Geiger. It's his only album. But it's a self-titled album. It's a kind of notable example. Um, worth noting, Tom Gray from the Seldom Scene and Country Gentleman plays bass on it. And um, and then there's also uh, Richie's 77 record, Jazzgrass, which featured many of the recurring players from the label, some of whom I mentioned uh, a moment ago, all performing jazz standards, yet but with bluegrass instrumentation and sensibilities, which kind of leads to another point that's worth making about bluegrass while most of it doesn't cross over into jazz like the aforementioned jazz grass as a record collector i kind of find that uh, collecting bluegrass is a lot like collecting jazz you start by getting the records from the big names like uh, bill monroe or miles davis in the jazz section and seldom seen and olden way whatever and then you flip over the back of the record and see who's playing on it and you start grabbing records from those players uh, or records that those cats are also on, like Tom Gray. That led me to the Fred Geiger record, for example. Um, or maybe you latch onto a label that you enjoy and you start digging through a catalog, which is how I got hip to Ridge Runner. So I've been listening to Seldom Seen. I see Tom Gray's on this record with this banjo player I've never heard of, and I buy that. It's amazing. It's on Ridge Runner. I start buying things on Ridge Runner and, you know, and just buying different stuff based on who's playing on it. Yeah, I'm actually going to Nashville at this coming November and uh, haven't been there twice before. The potential for bluegrass vinyl and their uh, stores is it's enormous. Looking forward to going to Grimey's, looking forward to going to the Groove in East Nashville. I mean, it it makes perfect sense given the location that uh, the odds of finding really good country and bluegrass music in Nashville is much larger than what we have up here in New York City. Also, Nashville being a city that uh, they're actually building more and more vinyl stores, which is the exact opposite of what's going on here. But it, uh, they have a very I had big the pleasure of the form. At the pleasure of record digging in Virginia, where I have had great luck for looking at bluegrass records around here. Progressive groups and players that led to the likes of uh, Bela Fleck, who I'm sure most of we, most of you know, Gordon Stone, who uh, some Fish fans may recognize, 
Leftover Salmon, Aquarium Rescue Unit, Jazz Mandolin Project, Nickel Creek, the infamous String Dusters, and the Punch Brothers, who uh, were formed by Nickel Creek's Chris Teeley and the former String Duster Chris Eldridge, whose father is Ben Eldridge, who was the founder of the Southern Scene. And uh, even Virginia's Love Cannon, which, uh, John, you turned me on to, they, uh, they play bluegrass takes on 1980s hits. And if you would ask if they do Toto's Africa bluegrass style, the answer is you're goddamn right they do. <laughs> they do. Um, and their their dogo player, Jay Starling, is the son of another seldom seen founder, John Starling. And I'll go ahead and say that on my 40th birthday, they played a request for me of Touch of Grey. Oh, that's right. Which, huh. which is an 80s hit, so it definitely fits. It is, yeah, it is. All the records are on Spotify. There's lots of fun to check out. I mean, even... If you're going to use Spotify, they have a playlist called like Bluegrass Covers, which is predominantly covers of 80s songs done bluegrass style, not only by Love Cannon, but by several bands. And um, even recently, last week, I discovered a new album by this, uh, this bluegrass guitar prodigy named Billy Strings. The album is called Turmoil in, in Tinfoil. It's... Uh, showcases both bluegrass tradition and expansive jamminess and it's actually produced i think by a member of green sky bluegrass yet i'm finding it less annoying than blue sky uh sorry green sky bluegrass because uh billy strings is really good high lonesome bluegrass voice while i think green sky singer kind of sounds like adam durris with a head cold that just won't go away but that's just me All right, on that note, we are going to take a quick break, play a little bit of music right now, and then we'll be right back with some new album recommendations for you guys. is the time in the show where we take a step back, talk with you guys a little bit about some new music that we've been listening to, and since we are so focused on musical history in this episode, it's great to talk about some stuff that's come out in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I'm going to talk about a pretty appropriate record for this episode. This is David Rawlings' uh, newest album called Poor David's Almanac. Uh, David Rawlings has recorded uh, a number of different uh, uh, umbrellas uh, and titles. Uh, David Rawlings' Machine, I believe, is his full band. He also records with uh, Gillian Welsh, um, who he partners with. They produce. He produces her uh, albums, and they write a lot of songs with. This is, uh, from what I could tell, this was his third solo record. It's hard to, to differentiate between some of the projects. Right, because the... Uh, 
the machine, he, like he, he, his full band, he kind of uh, will record with on a regular basis. I mean, this has multiple instruments uh, and and artists on it, but I believe this is his third record. R- regardless, it's a fantastic album. Um, bit of backstory: David Rollins attended Berkeley College of Music, and uh, as I noted, he has produced records for Gillian Welsh, Old Crow Medicine Show, Willie Nelson, as well as wrote. Uh, Pretty much Ryan Adams' uh, first major hit as a uh, solo musician, To Be Young Is To Be Sad Is To Be High, um, back from Heartbreaker. Um, the signature sound that Rollins plays is uh, through a flat-picking, small archtop guitar. It's a 1935 Epiphone Olympic, to be specific. And this was a guitar that he scavenged in his friend's attic, and since he found it and it was covered in complete dust, he rarely plays anything else. Uh, this record, Poor David's Almanac, is the perfect fall album in the way most of Welsh's albums are. Um, and it really sounds great with uh, her additions on it as well as David's songwriting. Um, the storytelling and the songwriting throughout evokes long-forgotten cabins, fading campfires, an afternoon spent doing absolutely nothing but fishing. It sounds very rootsy. It's a very much of a folk album. But also, Rollins produces it in such a tight way. It's such a clear, uh, just beautiful sounding album. It has a real modern feel without sounding too updated. Um, so I would definitely recommend anybody who's enjoying this episode thus far to get themselves a copy of David Rollins' Poor Almanac and put it on right now. Uh, Dave, what do you got for us this week? Lately, I've been listening to the latest album by The Horrors. It is their fifth album, and it's just called V, like the Roman numeral five. And also, because they're British, you can do the like V things with your fingers, and it's kind of like our middle fingers. They thought that was kind of funny. Um, so we talked about the horrors album, primary colors. That was her second album on, uh, the August 22nd, 2015 Prince Caspian episode. That was, uh, the album that got me to pay much attention to them. And this is their fifth album. And it kind of even goes further down their established, uh, sort of goth shoegaze template. However, uh, in the past, while they kind of veered, or My Bloody Valentine, more post-punk bass lines. This one, the big influence happens to be Depeche Mode. I'm talking like mid-late, I guess late 80s, music for the masses, uh, 101, even like Violator, Enjoy the Silence, era Depeche Mode. And it's actually produced by Paul Epworth, and he used to be the go-to guy for mid-2000s blog indie bands like Block Party and The Rapture. But as of late, if you heard that name, it's probably because he produces Adele, as well as uh, I think he produced The Last Florence and The Machine album. He's, uh, you know, kind of those big, large British chantuses, but sort of, I guess, more getting back to his roots with this album. Really, I mean, if you like what the horrors have done in the past, which is sort of uh, like synthesize their own record collections. There's a lot of things to like here. It's got a very big sound, lots of clanking feedback, lots of big drums, and it's uh, 
you know, it's the first time in a while the horrors have actually kind of sounded some somewhat sinister. It's maybe the most sinister they've sounded since their first album. And I would highly recommend it to uh, people that are in for a kind of brand of, uh, you know, big, brassy, British goth arena rock, which kind of sounds sort of mechanical, but at the same time, very well written and uh, very melodic. So, Jonathan, what do you got? I'm going to tack back in the other direction, I think, and uh, I've been listening to a record came out last week, which was his golden messenger. Hallelujah. Anyhow. And, uh, this record, it builds on the last two heart, like a levy and lateness of dancers, which both of which made my, you know, best of the year lists in the previous years. Mm-hmm. And, um, MC Taylor has been around a while. You know, he was, um, this is probably his ninth full album uh, under the name, his golden messenger, um, he was in Court and Spark before that. And, you know, this project is really largely him. And in the past couple of years, though, he's been working with Phil Cook of Megaphone. Phil's been playing multiple instruments on his records and touring as a piano player, uh, occasional guitars. Um, and Phil and his brother Brad, who produces this album, plays bass on it. They, you may have may know them from Megaphon, who was kind of late in the last decade, beginning of this decade. They were kind of uh, up and comers from the, the like the free folk, freak folk scene, I guess, but mm-hmm. also kind of prominent in the Durham music scene, which is where uh, His Golden Messenger is based. And the sound of this is. Acoustic singer-songwriter, maybe, but uh, Southern Soul. Um, and I really feel like you can hear some sort of merge between what was maybe a bit more dour uh, in the earlier His Golden Messenger records, uh, merge of that writing, brilliant, really great lyric writing, and a bit of the more uplifting Southern soul sound that Phil Cook has been working in his own projects of late and his, uh, uh, his last record really, it infuses, it feels like it infuses this record quite a bit with that sound. Yeah. It um, feels like a marrying of those two sounds. And I know, absolutely. Uh, Hiss wrote something right after this, right when the record was released about how, you know, he's been on tour a lot the last couple of years and he, uh, brings a ton of darkness on himself, and this record is kind of him almost challenging himself to uh, embrace the positive and embrace hope, and was kind of imploring listeners to do the same. And <clears throat> as we all kind of sit under an ominous bubble of North Korea <laughs> and just incessant <laughs> and whatnot, stupidity. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think this record really for the time. This record makes it easier to do that. Um, mm-hmm. I I will also add that um, I saw these guys last year right at the end of the tour that they were doing, and it was it was early November, and it was just a, a wonderful show. So not only is this record highly recommended, but if you can see them live, you should because they really do deliver on stage. Was he ever the singer in a hardcore punk band or I just imagine that? 
Uh, you didn't necessarily imagine that. He was in um, Ex Ignota, I think is X dash okay. Ignota. Um, and then that was that was further back. I don't know if he was a singer. I know he was a member of that band. And then uh, and then Court and Spark. And then now his Golden Messenger. So yeah, he's MC Taylor. He's been around. Yeah, he's. I saw him in May, and I uh, agree with you. Fantastic show, and you and I are both residents of opposite sides of the DC metro area. Um, I think he's coming to the nine thirty club this November or December. Am I wrong about that? No, you are not wrong. I think that's December. Mm. I think uh, perhaps a, an HF pod. Broke down pod, beyond the pond, uh, meetup as would be in due for that. That would be a great right. show. Sounds good. All right. So our second segment here, we're going to do something. Uh, I think you guys are going to really like this. We're going to break down um, three individual uh, bluegrass songs that Fish has covered. We're going to talk a little bit about the Fish song. We're going to talk a little bit about um, the original that this song came from as well as uh, introduce you guys to an additional song from the artist who originally wrote this, really to kind of track the lineage of Fish Bluegrass and how it's gotten to where, um, how, how it uh, kind of worked its way backwards through history. So the first song that we're going to talk about is Uncle Penn. And um, Uncle Penn was written by Bill Monroe, as Jonathan uh, pointed out earlier in the episode. Um, and we're going to play a version here from uh, December 29th, 1994. But before we jump into that, um, Jonathan, what else are we going to feature here from Bill Monroe? Well, we're going to um, play a, uh, a different version of Uncle Penn from Bill Monroe in 1963. It was actually from uh, November 16th, 1963 in Worcester, Mass. And uh, that version of the Bluegrass Boys featured uh, a younger Del McCrory. And that show is actually recorded by David Grisman. Um, wow. Yeah. And uh, we're going to actually have two play two things from that. So in addition to a little bit of his take on Uncle Penn, we're going to also play a little Blue Moon of Kentucky. Fantastic. And um, just in terms of Uncle Penn and where it fits in the Fish catalog. So this is a song that was incredibly reliable within the Fish rotation through the Great Went save for a few 11, 15, and 140 show gap uh, within the song's history. Uh, suddenly, after The Great Went, it went missing for 136 shows before reappearing on 10-499. Since then, it's been a uh, true rarity, only been played 13 times since the fall of 1999, with two separate gaps of 129 and 123 shows. So this went from total rotation into complete rarity, uh, kind of a unique aspect of Fish's uh, growing catalog throughout the eras. Um, Uncle Penn debuted on March 28, 1990, which was the same night that Tweezer, Cavern, and Runaway Jim debuted. And uh, in Fish's version, they've actually added two instrumental sections named Soldiers, uh, Soldier's Joy and Boston Boy, during the breakdown about two-thirds of the way through the song through the song both are mentioned by uh title in the lyrics of the song uh so notable performances of uncle penn 
are the version from uh, April 15, 1992, which they dedicate to Bill Monroe. June 17, 1995, Feet into Uncle Penn. November 30th, 1996, with John McEwen on banjo. Uh, the aforementioned June 22nd, 2000, with uh, Del McCrory. And then they also played it on August 31st of 2012. Of course, the famous the, uh, the famous Fuck Your Face show. Also, just want to say that this is probably the first time in Fish podcast history that we are saying December 29th, 1994, and talking about the Uncle Pen as opposed to <laughs> the... What, there's uh, something else on that show we're talking about? Yeah, I... <laughs> I was unaware of that there are they did play something other than David Bowie that night. Yeah, there's uh, that's what we do up beyond the pond. We just break history left and right. <laughs> and on that note, let's play it. <laughs>
So the next song we're going to talk about is Ginseng Sullivan. Ginseng Sullivan is a song by Norman Blake, and it came originally from his album Back Home in Sulphur Springs. And um, we're going to listen to the Fish perform this from 93, 123193, and then we'll get into a little bit of the Norman Blake version from the record. And then also from that same album, we'll hear a little bit of Norman Blake's Bringing in the Georgia Mail. Um, compared to Uncle Penn, they've, this one's more of a rarity. They've only played it 78 times up through Dick's 2017. Um, since 98, they've had consistent gaps of 10 plus shows. And they played it exclusively acoustic through summer of 94 with fish on the Madonna washboard, which is pretty cool. And wish I had seen that. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's funny to go back and listen to a lot of those shows uh, where they'll play Ginseng Sullivan. And unless there was a taper up close to the stage or unless it's soundboard, you really can't hear it at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like a distant uh, recording. I've uh, I've actually only seen this song once on uh, four seventeen two thousand and four, which I, I thought I'd seen it more, but I went back and checked my stats. Um, coincidentally or not, probably not. This was one of the five worst fish shows that I've ever seen. <laughs> not a good show. Oh, wow. It uh, not good. If you know anything from our last episodes, we are Dave and I are not huge fans of the second set meat stick and uh the entire second set gets meat sticked um <laughs> it's also came in that vegas 04 run where um basically that's that's uh the the impetus for fish is breaking up i've seen ginseng sullivan three times though uh none since november 24th 1998 for new haven connecticut very uh very underrated show i'd say well, in terms of the show that this ginseng comes from, um, this is anything but underrated. Uh, 1231.93, this is one of the strongest pre-1995 fish shows. And uh, along with 1230.93, which I am partial to myself, uh, this represents one of the best back-to-back nights of fish ever. Um, and the fact that this happened on 1230 and 1231 on New Year's Eve, it, it just makes it that much more special. Um, where none of you guys were at, I don't think any of us were at this show, but do you guys remember when you got this show in your collection? I remember getting this sometime, uh, I think in the summer on a bootleg compact disc and we listened the crap out of this show, this, in that, that following summer and fall. Um, it was recorded on the radio, wasn't it? It was like a radio performance. I think it was an FM broadcast. We had great tapes. Yeah, the recording quality is amazing, and um, I mean, for a set list pre-1995, it's about as perfect as you get. Um, you've got a llama, stash, reba, antelope, tweezer, possum, yam, uh, split open and melt, Susie Greenberg, and Harry Hood all in the same show. It's just like... If New Year's 95 is a class- is like classic fish set list... 93 is like that on steroids. It's unbelievable. Uh, Plus 93, I think they were playing in front of uh, the big Minkins, and they also had the whole stage set up with the aquarium and the clam. And Yeah, the whole world had, uh, is just such a special part of fish history. I love it. Um, this show has perhaps the best Harry Hood of all time. 
I don't think I would say it is, but it's just a very classic stand, uh, uh, like a completely perfect take on a standard uh, version of the jam. And it gave us the birth of Down Disease, uh, a riff that we would come to know and love, but had no idea what it was on uh, New Year's 93. It is the riff. The riff. Arguably Trey's signature gets everyone out of their seat riff. So Unless it's a Saturday and... night second set opener. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the it's, Saturday night second set opener. How you can <laughs> I can pencil it into everyone I go to, but I don't think I've ever been disappointed in it. No. no me I love it. Nor have I. It's like Scarlet Begonias. Mm-hmm. No, it's I'll coming. Take it. But well, this is not a down with disease episode, though it could very quickly turn into one with uh how much we've all seen and heard down with disease. Let's go ahead and uh, jump into Ginseng Sullivan here. Delta 
So the next song we're going to hear is My Long Journey Home, and we're going to listen to the Fish performance from 112195 at Winston-Salem. And after that, we're going to hear Jim Eanes and his Shenandoah Valley Boys perform that song. Um, their version comes from 1953. Um, from In fact, this the one we're hearing comes from a CD that came from the straight from the 78, from legendary 78 collector Joe Broussard. And you know, this is in some places listed as traditional. I know it is on fish.net and this version credits PD, which may stand for public domain. But when they released it again in 1960, they credited somebody named uh, Dixon Stewart. Um, so a little unclear. Um, you'd think they would have known seven years apart, but I selected this version. I selected the Jim Eanes and this Winston Salem versions because Jim Eanes died on eleven twenty one ninety five, and so I have little doubt that the timing of this performance is coincidental. Um, and then after that, we will listen to a little bit of a little more Jim Eanes. Uh, we'll hear Florida Blues, uh, also from nineteen seventy eight. Um, this would be the rarest of these songs that we're playing here today. Um, there's only about 15 of them, and they haven't played it since 1129 when Bela Flex sat in with them. Yeah, and this song we talked about a little bit ago uh, debuted on 11-16-94. This is that 34-minute simple show that was uh, graciously released by Kevin Shapiro on the From the Archives prior to Magnaball. Um I remember driving through small towns up to Watkins Glen listening to that, just being blown away all over again, hearing it from a soundboard quality. But anyway, this was during that run that uh, the band was being taught elements of bluegrass from Reverend Jeffrey Mosier. And uh, um, this song has often been paired before or after I'm Blue, I'm Lonesome, another rare bluegrass song that hasn't been played in a number of years. But this song as well was featured on the... uh, I think this was the encore of the 122994 show. Is that correct? I should know that offhand. I think it was. I'm going to go with Sounds that. right. <laughs> I'm going to go with that. I think it absolutely was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just double-checked it was. Uh, that before Sleeping Monkey is some great, great energy. Um, this show is famous for a... Set to opening simple into David Bowie into Take Me to the River into David Bowie that's more than 30 minutes of jamming plus a 14-minute mic song that appears later in the set that has no Weekapog groove. (laughs) We're going to play a little bit of My Long Long Journey Home uh, for you guys to hear uh, 
uh, some fish and some some bluegrass as well.
All right. And um, so that's just about it. We've been through, covered a lot of ground here today, guys. Um, we just heard some uh, bluegrass. Uh, we heard versions of Uncle Penn from Fish and Bill Monroe and a little Blue Moon of Kentucky from Bill Monroe. We heard versions of Ginseng Sullivan from Fish and Norman Blake. And then we heard Bringing in the Georgian Mail from Norman Blake. And then we heard uh, my, long journey, my Long Journey Home from Fish and Jim Means and his Shenandoah Valley Boys. And then we also heard Florida Blues from Jim Means. And, um, you know, we've talked about a lot of great music and touched on a lot of different things in this episode. It's, it's kind of hard to name every single one right here. But uh, this has been a lot of fun. Absolutely, John. It's been an extremely, extremely large amount of fun. And um, <laughs> thank you for joining us very much. Yes. And um, let me just run down our social media links. You can. Easily find us online. We're uh, on Twitter at underscore beyond the pond. We've got a medium page, medium.com slash beyond the pond. And with Spotify, every time before a new episode runs, we try to update the beyond the pond podcast song playlist, where we try to showcase as many songs that uh, Spotify will allow i know they have a very large bluegrass library so we'll uh try to update it the best that we can cool you guys can also find me on uh, on the internet um you can find me at broke down pod on twitter and i'm also on facebook under the broke down podcast and then i have a uh, internet web page which is broke down and by the time this goes up, you might even be able to find me on Instagram. I like it. Um, so as you all well know by now, our publishing structure is pretty simple. Every other Tuesday, Tuesdays have no feel. You don't remember the weekend and you cannot see the next weekend. So you might as well do a deep dive into a fish jam and listen to a bunch of music. Um, per our recording time here with this uh, episode, it's probably going to go live in I'm guessing mid-October, so the next episode that you'll be looking for is going to be early November. Um, As we've been mentioning the last few episodes, we've got uh, some more guests coming up. We were very excited here to have Jonathan on as our first guest. Um, We've got a couple more coming up here, and we've got a really special episode that we're doing with uh, Jonathan's other podcast, uh, HF Pod. So, Keep your ears out for that. Keep your eyes uh, looking for it. But every other Tuesday, you can hear from us. Hey, I just want to interject. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. Yeah, this is, uh, I certainly learned a lot of things about bluegrass music that I did not know, uh, I guess, two hours ago. So (laughs) (laughs) I hope that uh, all of our listeners feel the exact same. I think that they will. You did a really good job breaking down um, a very diverse complex and in some cases unknown genre just because of the lack of radio play uh from a modern era it's uh takes a lot of digging to get all this sort of stuff out so thank you man you you're welcome uh, anytime it's really just the tip of the iceberg so hopefully i've given somebody at least somebody out there you know something to start with 
And on that note, once again, we always thank the listener for getting this far. If you like what we hear, also you can go into iTunes and you can post a review of the podcast. We always like going back to check to read those, and it uh, helps boost us up in iTunes, which is always good. And on that note, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. I'm Jonathan Hart. And come back in two Tuesdays when once again we will go beyond the pond. It's time to move on. It's time to get going. What lies ahead, I have no way to know. But under my feet, baby, grass is growing. It's time to move on. Skyline moving to the airport. She's an honest defector, conscientious objector, now her own protector. Yeah, broken skyline. Which way to love land? Which way to something better? Which way to forgiveness? Which way do I go? Baby, grass is growing